Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Right now, would you welcome Wendy as she comes, and we're actually going to do the message together today. Hey, all right. So uh, let's, let's jump on in. Well, we've been making our way through Romans, and we thought that we would be moving on to Romans 9 this week, um, yet we just couldn't get off this one verse from Romans 8, um, and it's 831. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And throughout the week, we just prayed over that. We tried to write the message, but we just still found like ourselves on Wednesday evening with nothing more than this verse. And that's just never a good feeling to be that late in the week and not know what you're going to share on Sunday. You know, we thought the worst case scenario is we're just going to repeat this verse over and over again. Wouldn't you have just enjoyed that? Yeah. Anyway, but we were trying to figure out, is this verse for more for us or is it for the whole church? And so anyway, I went to prayer on Wednesday night. I mean, it's every Wednesday night at Quest here at seven o'clock. Anyone is welcome to come and join whenever you would like. And one of the ways that they were praying over the neighborhoods was singing that blessing song over them. And do you remember that part of the song where it just repeats over and over again, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. And it just seemed to reinforce that the Holy Spirit's desire was for us to be, to more solidly establish in our hearts how God is for us and how he is for you. So we are going to camp on that verse today. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Did you know that there are 1,784 ifs in the Bible? Now, many of them are familiar, like if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And those are incredible promises and amazing. They're amazing ifs. But the one I think I love is this one that we are focusing on. If God is for us, who can be against us? J.I. Packer, we referenced him last week. One of the most influential Christian theologians of the last century said, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances that the Bible contains. Yet instead of the if making me think, if God, I more often hear if and naturally think, if only. Like, if only I had done this, if only I had done that. Which I think leads many of us to this place of if only becomes bigger than if God in our life. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think many of us have a hard time believing this truth about who God is. And I think the reason we do is because of the regrets that we have in our life. So our goal for today is to help us put in perspective our mistakes and our sins and the truth of how God is for us and allow that to sink in more deeply. Now, we all have regrets. Some are small, some are big. Maybe you bought something, a house that was too expensive, a car that was too expensive, and you have buyer's remorse. Or maybe you wished you would have taken a different job or chosen a different relationship. We wonder if we missed out on something or if we're stuck in life because of the decisions we've made. We may wish to go back to the past and change, change things, but we can't. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten a divorce. Maybe the, the, the mistake we made that cost us our job or our reputation we wouldn't have done again. Or, or maybe the decision you made that you feel like cost you having a greater measure of success that never really materialized. That you wish you would have done something different there. 
For anyone who's gone through midlife stuff, regret can become a real major theme. As we see in places where our life doesn't measure up and, and, and like we thought it would be, we start focusing on those things. And I mean, we all have regrets, right, over things that we've done. I think some of our greatest regrets, though, are things we wish we had done but we didn't do. There's a study that discovered in the short term that we tend to regret actions more than inactions. However, toward the end of our life, that kind of flips, and we actually start to regret the things we didn't do, our inactions, more than we regret the things that we did do that we wish we hadn't done. I think because in reality, inaction is an action. Indecision is a decision. And we may deeply regret having done certain things. This is called a sin of commission. Maybe we said something in anger or drank too much and we did some stuff that we didn't want to do and we regret that. Or, But these actions, these acts of inaction are also sins. They're called sins of omission. It's the missed opportunities to love someone really well, whether it was a big or whether it was a small thing that we just didn't do. We didn't risk obeying a hunch that we had from the Holy Spirit to do something. We didn't want to make a mistake, so we just didn't do anything. And the Bible teaches us that both are not obeying God. Mm -hmm. So we live with regrets. And how do we deal with them? I'm reminded of Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. It's where, um, you know, he shares how an idea or a behavior, it gains so much energy that it tips the balance of a system and it brings about a really large change. Now, Gladwell describes it this way. He says, the tipping point is that magic moment when an idea, a trend, or a social behavior crosses a threshold, tips, and then spreads like wildflower. Wildfire, not wildflowers. That would be cool. But anyway, well, we see wildflowers are great too. (laughs) Yeah, well, we we see it when an emerging technology becomes an industry standard, like Kleenex replaces hankies, which I think we're grateful for. Um, Cars replace horses. I'm definitely grateful. Um, Cable replaces broadcast TV. I'm not sure if I'm grateful. So anyway, um, but we also see that it is a group of people who adopt a behavior and then it reaches a critical mass and it just goes viral. We see it in sports. It's like that moment when the momentum shifts in a game. Spiritually, the tipping point for change is repentance. It's that point where you see your sin, your stuff, and you say, oh my gosh, God, forgive me. And you receive his forgiveness of love. Repentance just leads us to remembering, yes, yes, God, you are the one I want to lead my life. And it just tips it. It, The whole momentum shifts. Sin then no longer owns you anymore. And it allows this truth that God is for you in every day, in every way. And it can go viral in your life and it can spread like wildfire. Um, This happens because we get that Jesus proved that he is so for us on the cross. And that's where he dealt with our sin and all of our regrets. You know, our regrets are nailed there on that cross. There is no regret that God cannot redeem. And it's because Romans 5, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, what while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we know that even when we were against God, that he was for us, that his heart was toward you. You can turn your back on God, but he is never going to turn his back on you, no matter how far or fast that you run. Whenever you turn around, you're going to discover that God is right there. Now, we talked two, different, two weeks ago about the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction, again, is feeling guilt over unconfessed sin, mm-hmm. sins we have not dealt with. 
Condemnation is feeling guilt over confessed sin. Things that we've done that we keep playing over and over and over in our heads, making us feel condemned, making us feel like we're garbage. Conviction is a good thing because it helps us deal with what's wrong and get back to being right with God and others. But Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. Paul is writing this. He had had to have had flashbacks about when he was there supporting the stoning of Stephen. He had to live with flashbacks of when he was basically a a terrorist hunting down Christians like animals. He knew regrets, and yet he didn't let those sinful regrets keep him from traveling all over the Roman Empire, sharing about God and writing half of the New Testament. Paul came to terms with his sin and had a greater understanding of God's grace and mercy than maybe possibly anybody. I mean, even, in, even his past, with his past, he wrote this truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? God just doesn't want to leave us with regrets in the past. He wants to leverage them for good. He doesn't want us to bury our mistakes. God wants to use them. In fact, it's very possible that God wants you to help someone with the very same mistakes that you made. Mm -hmm. But the enemy wants to make us feel condemnation. I mean, someone who failed miserably and could have gotten really stuck in regrets was the late Chuck Colson. He was one of President Nixon's right-hand men. He was a major player behind the Watergate scandal, and he went to prison. And in his failure, he found God. And he said, oh, gosh, I thought my opportunity to accomplish anything really significant in my life was over once I was in prison and public enemy number one. However, in the past 27 years since I've been out of prison, I've seen how God used my broken experience for his greatest glory. Anything said about me has to be a reflection of the great things God has done, not Chuck Colson. He goes, I'm able to do what I do today because of the greatest failure in my life. Mm -hmm. He started Prison Fellowship as a direct result of his imprisonment, and he became one of the most influential Christian leaders of our modern times. He was radically transformed through his failure, enabling him to care for others because of his deep understanding of God's grace and forgiveness and transforming power. So even in our failures, God is for us. So how do we get that truth? That God is so for us, so deep down inside our being, that we are rock solid like Paul. Hebrews 4 tells us, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost Mm -hmm. thoughts and desires. But I think we have a tendency to approach the Bible in a way that we try to dissect it and figure it out. And that's good. We should do that. That's fine. But this verse is telling us that we need to understand that the purpose of the Bible is to dissect us, not us dissect it. Instead of wanting us, us wanting to get through the Scripture and understand all of its arguments, we need to live letting the Word of God permeate every fiber of our being, seeping into the cracks and crevices of our mind and our heart, and as that Scripture says, exposing that unconscious motivation or those things that are going on in our head that are mm-hmm. keeping us in an unhealthy place. God created us uniquely with a conscious and unconscious mind. Conscious, obviously, is what we know, right? We, we understand that's going on. We're aware of. Subconscious is what we may not be aware of. 
Uh, there have been numerous studies on, on conscious and subconscious, uh, how that affects us, uh, especially in regard to subliminal experiences that we are not consciously aware of. Now, some research shows our brain sends about 11 million information, bits of information every second. Now, I don't know how they figure out 11 million bits, but the researchers did. And they actually tell us that we can only consciously process about 50 bits of information per second. Meaning we can only consciously process about one one-thousandth of a percent of, a, of the incoming data. So where does that data that we can't consciously process go? Does it just disappear? Neuroscientists actually say no. All of that data affects us. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Hang with me, hang with me. We can see from MRI scans of our brain that things we experience on a more subconscious level affect us. We know this from advertising. Advertising research has shown subconsciously font types, colors, music all affect our choices. Certain colors on a dishwashing detergent bottle will subconsciously affect our beliefs on how well it cleans. So what I'm trying to say here is with our conscious mind, we may understand that God is for us. But there's this vast majority of things happening beneath the surface that may have lead us to have some doubts about this truth not being settled fully in us. There may be some experiences from our past that God needs to use this word that is sharper than a two-edged sword to expose these unconscious thoughts and feelings and motivations that we feel in order for us to actually be able to deal with them. So how do we get this truth more deeply down in our hearts and minds so that it's settled? Um, when I think about how the subliminal works, I often think of music. And in the fifth grade, our youngest son's um, teacher, she asked the students to come up with an anthem song which meant a song that, you know, would meaningfully stir you to action. And ever since Jared has used this song, I mean, he would play it in the morning for years to get himself awake to get to school. He would get it, use it to pump himself up before a game or before a difficult assignment or just to playfully annoy me. Um, and so it's a classic tune from 1982. Um, and so due to licensing issues, so that we don't want to get it bumped off of YouTube, all I can do is really poorly hum it. And I want to see if you can guess what this anthem song was. So it goes bump, 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 bump. Yeah, yeah. Every morning for years, okay? And I don't know why Rocky is talking about an eye of a tiger, but I am ready to rise up to the challenge of my rival. I would get so pumped. I'm ready to rumble. Let's go, right? Um, but songs like these, they are designed to get us in the zone. They get us in the right mind. Music helps us concentrate. We call it the Mozart effect. And we saw that with David. He would play a harp for Saul, and it would help Saul to regain his right mind. So music can help us get something in our heart and our mind because those sounds and the beats, they help us to hear words over and over again, and they use a different part of our brain. So maybe it's through a song, maybe it's through meditating on it or memorizing it, but we just want to get this truth repeated so that it's more firmly established even in our subconscious and our gut. So if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, Stephanie, our new children's director, she was telling me um, last week how the kids in Sunday school, they were pulling into the same verse from Romans 8 about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And they were doing it at the same time that we were doing the Lectio Divina on those same verses. 
And I loved how they practiced getting this truth more um, deeply embedded in their hearts. So they took different colors of Play-Doh, and then they had the kids twist them and mix them all together. And then they said, okay, we want you to unmix those colors, right? But only to discover there is absolutely no way that you can separate colors of Play-Doh once you've put them together, just like there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God. So we're trying to get this truth to become more like this tipping point, this build this momentum where this truth spreads like wildfire in our lives. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes one of the most important questions of the Bible as a rhetorical question. The answer is assumed. God is for you. And how do we know that? He proved it by sending his son to the cross to die for us in our place. Even when we were against him, he was for us. However, sometimes I still feel like we think that we need to be good enough. And if we're good, then God will be good to us. But God's goodness is not based upon how good or bad we are. God is good because God is good. That's just who he is. It's his nature. God is for you. David described it this way in Psalm 23. He said, surely your God, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Uh, the English word follow in that isn't quite as strong as the Hebrew word, which is a hunting term. This is basically saying God is going to hunt you down mm-hmm. so that he can bless you. Wow. He wants to show you that he is for you and with you and behind you. That's why you hear some talk of God as being the hound of heaven. That's where that term kind of came from. I mean, still, though, we may object, right? But, but, but I don't deserve it. Yeah, correct. You never have and you never will. God's goodness is not because you do something good. Isn't it hard for us to understand relationships like that that aren't like, we, we want, we want relationships to be, I will do this for you if you do this for me. And that's kind of how we operate in a relationship. But God's not like that. We struggle believing this truth about God because many of us project our imperfections on God. We may think God is holding out on us because we're holding out on God. We're not sure if God's 100% for us because, well, I'm not 100% for Him. I'm not 100% in. And yet the truth is, God is for us. Even when we are only 10% for God, He is still 100% for you in every way all the time. So what would it be like if you really believed that God was for you? You know, in a, in a strange way, I was just reminded of a friend who was for our oldest son. Now, Derek had gone to Christian school when we lived in Oregon from kindergarten all the way to high school. So this transition for him to go to high school, it brought some anxiety for me, right? Partly because this high school student body frequently needed the police to be present. So, I mean, it wasn't a bad school, but it just had a wide variety of issues. And so... Uh, Derek didn't know very many people. He was going to have to make new friends, and um, he was a soccer fanatic. So, and that helped him find some new friends. One of the new friends was another high school kid who was involved in some kind of gang. I never really figured out what kind of gang. And he was also a cage fighter. Um, if you don't know all what that means, um, it's not a safe 
occupation. Um, anyway, um, but so um, this guy just liked Derek, and this new merry band of little soccer players would go play any kind of pickup soccer game anywhere, everywhere, anytime. And it didn't matter if nobody on the other team spoke English. Uh, and so when Derek and I would talk about friend choices, he said, this cage fighter hangs out with us, Mom. We're not hanging out with his friends. And he says, Mom, when this guy is with us, nobody messes with us. And I'm not sure if that was a very good, one of my best parenting moments, but um, I actually did feel better when this cage fighter friend was with my son because I knew he was so for Derek. And so um, do we think of God at all like that? And I, I don't know if that's wrong to put him in an analogy of a cage fighter, but do we have the idea that the truth of how much God is for us, that really nobody should mess with us? Another way we keep drilling down on this idea of how God is for us is remembering the times God has showed up in our lives. I mean, I think one of the most wonderful things about getting older is we accumulate evidence of God's faithfulness. But even then, don't you still love watching people who are new to their faith, testing out their faith, risking seeing, seeing something if God will show up and be faithful, even if it doesn't turn out the way they want? Just the fact that they're risking and trying. I think the older I get, the more I wish that I would have taken more risks in life. So I want to be a person who cheers on younger people who are taking risks to develop a legacy of God's faithfulness, to develop their memories of God's love and how he comes through in all sorts of circumstances. Because I think this statement is true. Discouragement is often referred to as spiritual amnesia. We lose faith when we forget the times that God has been faithful and taken us through things and brought victory out of darkness. And so one of the things I love about the church, this church is that we have multiple generations. We have some people who have seen God working in their life for a long time, and they encourage us. I, I love being around Walt and Barb Miller, who have been married for over 60 years and, and walked with Jesus for even longer than that, because they constantly remind me to walk in faith and confidence in God's goodness, that this too shall pass and God will be good even in the end of this, whatever it is. Because if... God is for us. Who can be against us? It's a good question. Who can be against me? Can a horrible boss? A disappointed, angry spouse? A chronic health problem? Difficult kids? See, Paul is not saying opposition won't happen. He's just saying that no opposition will overcome him because while the struggles he faces and we face are big, God is even bigger. You know, Proverbs 31:25 says a godly woman laughs without fear of the future. Like is that even possible? Like with all that can go wrong in anyone's life, how do you face the future without worry or fear? You know, is it because this 31 woman is so savvy and wise and she's taken FPU so that she has all this money in the bank for any and all possible problems so that she will always be able to live comfortably? I know, is it because she's in such good shape and in health? Does she not have to worry because she has perfect kids who have no issues and are doing phenomenal in school? Uh, maybe is it because she has perfect friends who have no issues at all? <laughs> um, does she have no fear of the future because all the right politicians are in the office and things are trending in the right direction for our future, right? I think not, right? So in a godly woman or man, they, we have no fear of the future because 
we know that God is bigger than anything that threatens us. We understand what Paul understands. God is for us no matter what. I mean, and doesn't that sound similar to what David felt when he wrote, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I mean, no one wants to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But if we have to, God, you are there with me. You are stronger than anything in this valley. Look how Paul takes his point further. Mm -hmm. In verse 35, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And these two questions, again, are rhetorical. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Nothing. Paul is not talking about, just in this moment, an intellectual set of beliefs he picked up. He experienced these things. He's been beaten, faced death, danger all around. He's gone without food, was cold, naked, and hungry. He knows these things cannot separate him from God's love because... He's walked through them, and he's experienced God's love and victory even through these difficult things. No, he says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. Think about this. It was a huge empire going all the way from the British Isles down into Europe and Germany, across Asia Minor, around the rim of the Mediterranean to northern Africa. It was possibly the greatest empire of the day. And the Romans were used to winning. It was normal for them to win. They were known as the conquerors of their generation. And yet Paul writes to this group of Christians who were becoming more oppressed and more persecuted by these Roman conquerors every day. And Paul is telling them that you, as the Christians, are the ones who are conquerors. And not just conquerors, he says, more than conquerors. If you want to literally translate this, it's over above victorious. It is super victorious. So we see this holy confidence in Paul that he has in, in, in God when he writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, no, how, no matter how big this thing seems, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, for I am convinced. So this is not him saying, oh, this is my opinion. No, Paul is saying, this is a deeply held conviction. I have endured hardships and troubles. And when I look back, Victory is the only outcome. God has so invaded his life that he's convinced of God's character. That no matter what the circumstances look like in the moment, victory is the outcome. The love of God is not something we can only comprehend logically in our understanding. It has to get from our head to our hearts. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. It's a process of transformation. Knowing this love of God transforms our lives. The love of God changes everything. Paul is convinced of it because he has seen God show up in his life. God's love is bigger and stronger than your weaknesses, your doubts, your fears, your failures, your addictions, your sins, your habits. 
He is bigger and stronger than other people's habits and sins and bosses who are controlling you. He is bigger and stronger than all of those things. And those things cannot separate you from God's love. So let's end with a question. When was the last time that you had to trust God for the outcome of something? I mean, really trust God. Now, I think maybe through COVID and all the uncertainty and conflict, God has had us as Christians take a pause to listen. And we've needed to listen, and there are more things that we need to listen for. But however, I think because we have not maybe known how to respond or what to say or do on many issues, I think it has left many of us um, in sort of a pause mode and has kept many of us from dreaming. And we've gotten more stuck in the ifs of inaction rather than remembering If God is for me, what are the possibilities? And I think dreams often die because we're fearful that we're going to make a wrong decision. Um, You know, because we we need wisdom for decision making. But fear can also hide behind wisdom. Like we want to make this wise, responsible choice. But if the truth is, if we examined our motives, it may be more about us not wanting to lose what we have. We maybe not want to sacrifice for what could be. We want to make these safe choices, um, that we, but we may regret that later. Now, courage is often equated with boldness, yet it looks, I think, different than that. Someone once said, courage is not the absence of fear, it's the presence of perseverance. So we may feel fear, but we don't allow our feelings to tell us what to do and how to believe. Yet, boy, isn't it challenging to know, like, what is the best choice? What does a godly risk look like? I think we are needing to risk more. I think there's a boldness that we need to walk in that courage. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to pray, and I'd encourage us to all pray, is that, God, I'm going to go ahead and risk this. It may not make the best sense, or I'm just going to try to do and act because I trust you. And I trust you that if it's wrong, you're going to show me. And if it's right, I trust that you're going to show me that too. I am going to risk in faith that you are so for me, and I'm going to trust you with the outcome. And then go for it. Go with confidence and faith. Faith. I think that one of the things God's wanting to highlight is to bless your ability to dream. Um, dreams that reflect that you really know how much God is for you. It may help with remembering Michael Jordan from the 1990s. I loved uh, the, yeah. the mindset of one of his teammates, Stacey King, one of Michael Jordan's teammates. During the 1990 NBA season, Michael Jordan dropped 69 points on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And if you need healing of memories for that, just take a moment for pause here. Oh, you yeah. can get healing for that. After the game, the reporter asked Stacey King, how would you remember this epic moment? And King had watched most of the game from the bench. He'd only scored one point during the game. And King's response was, I will always remember this as the game that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. Mm-hmm. King went on all the way to the NBA championships three times with Jordan. And that's what we get with God. Yeah. God is so for us, we get to ride God's coattails for victory. So this week, take one thing you have regret over. Maybe it's something you've done or wished you would have done. And if you've repented and confessed about it, then talk with God about how he has or how he wants to use that failure for something good in your life. And maybe another thing you could do is identify one thing you would do more of if you really knew 
God was for you. So we're going to practice this truth by taking communion. Now, communion... Come on um, up, worship team. Yeah, it is such a beautiful and tangible way for us to bring home this truth of God's love. He loves us so much, and get it more into our gut. Um, we see the depth of understanding of God's love um, by a guy named John Bruce. He was a federal judge after the Civil War. And when he was on his deathbed, he told his daughter to get the Bible and bring it to him and turn to Romans 8. And then he asked her to put his feeble finger on Romans 8.38. You know, it's the one that we just quoted. He quoted it from memory. It says, For I again, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what we are doing when we, when we take communion. We're putting our finger on that verse. John Bruce, he died with his finger on that promise. And so when we take communion today, I would like us to think about when we take the wafer and the juice, we're putting our fingers on the promises of God, remembering how much he is for us and that nothing can separate us from his love. If you're here and didn't get communion, you want to raise your hand and somebody will uh, run it to you. I... Here, we'll do it quick this way. Catch. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Oh, that's holy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> come on, come on. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? It's the one thing I forgot to do between services, get somebody to help do that. Mm. So, when we take communion, we remember that Jesus said that uh, his body was given for us. He took the stripes on his back so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty and that we could experience the healing we all desperately long for and want. So go ahead and take this... uh, this bread. That last night took the cup and I said, this is my blood given for you. And then that moment he said that we basically need to remember that we have no hope, no peace, no salvation without his blood. But with his blood, who can be against us? We are forgiven. He is with us. Who can be against us? So go ahead and take this. Ask that you would come into this place now. And even as we turn to give our hearts and our minds to you in this next worship song. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and that you would go deep in each one of our hearts, that you would highlight those areas where we think life is too big and God, you are not big enough, and that we would receive the confidence of your spirit and your love. Those areas where we've failed, maybe even failed repeatedly, Lord, would you come and touch those areas with your peace that we would know that we know, that we know, that we know we are forgiven and loved and that you have 
an amazing purpose for our lives, a purpose bigger than we can even imagine. So Holy Spirit, come in this moment right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.